0: If you'd like to open your Bibles or locate Revelation 15 in your Bibles this morning, we're going to be reading um, all of f- uh, chapters 15 and 16 from Revelation. We're going to be focusing mainly on 16, but a little bit on 15 as well, because it sets up and ties to 16. It's all one story. As I was putting studying for this and putting the sermon together, I began to think of Jesus um, and how he endured what I would argue was the most unjust and rigged trial that has ever existed in human history. And I was thinking about him hanging there and the blood draining from his body and his breathing beginning to get more and more shallow and death is beginning to come upon him. And shortly before he died, as he hung there, the story tells us that he cried out triumphantly. Now the story doesn't say that specifically, but but uh, it, it's what is implied. He cries out in triumph, it is finished. And uh, for me, the story of Jesus' death on the cross, those three words one day just kind of captured my attention. I had read through the story so many times over the years, and and I can remember the moment that I was sitting at my desk in my office at the college, and I was reading that passage, and those words just kind of jumped off the page at me, and I started chasing them down and then ended up in Hebrews and began to realize that Jesus wasn't saying just that his crucifixion was finished. That was the way I'd always read it, was that his crucifixion was finished, and and he was finished, and it was almost like an agonizing, sad thing. That was the way I always read those words. And it occurred to me from that day forward that he was actually crying out about something far greater than just acknowledging that Uh, it was time to die. But that what he was saying in that moment was that all of the sacrificial work that had been done for so long to bring human beings into ceremonial acceptance with God so that they could live near him, all of that was done. All of the lambs that were killed year after year and all the bulls that had been killed year after year all of that bloodshed for sin was finished in his sacrifice because through his blood sacrifice, he had paid the penalty for sin so that all that believed in him could know full forgiveness of sin by God the Father. But just as important as that reality is that through his suffering, he bore the wrath of God for our sins. Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sin. And I would say this morning that by the time we're done with 15 and 16 in Revelation, if if you don't get anything else out of 15 and 16, just immerse yourself in the images of God's wrath being poured out on sinners. And as you immerse yourself in that, remember that God's wrath for your sin was poured out on Jesus. As I've studied these passages, this time through Revelation, I've really been struck with the question of what did Christ really experience on the cross? If this is what God's wrath looks like in 15 and 16, what did Jesus experience on the cross? And I hope that you will think about this. I want you to understand this morning, in part, that He bore the wrath of God for our sin, so that those who, by faith, trust in His sacrifice, would only ever experience the love and acceptance of God. That's that's the turning point. That that is that is the. Uh, wonderful i don't even know the word i want that is the wonderful it's not just a transaction it's it's a historical change from the wrath of god being upon you to the love and acceptance of god as fully as the wrath of god is poured out on these people that's how fully god loves you and accepts you god's wrath on our sin was satisfied And it was finished which is what chapters 15 and 16 specifically 15 is going to say to us this morning i invite you to follow along in your bibles as i read aloud from revelation 15 and 16. beginning in verse 1 of 15. then i saw another sign in heaven great and amazing seven angels with seven plagues which are the last for with them the wrath of God is finished. God's never going to be wrathful again. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, All nations come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels are finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went, And poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood and I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just Are you, O Holy One, who is and who was? For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch or burn people with fire. They were burned by the first fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world Will assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Sometimes, as I've read through Revelation, processing all the information as it comes to you and all these different visions, feels a little bit like being in a room with a million ping pong balls, continually bouncing off the walls, ceilings, and floors. And on top of that, I have ADHD. And so it's just, it's just like my brain is constantly bouncing around in Revelation and trying to sort all that through. And sometimes the storyline can seem a bit random and incoherent. But over time, I'm thankful, especially what I've done this time going through Revelation, is I've been rereading Revelation over and over again, as I've said before, holistically in one setting. I'll just read through the whole thing. And that has helped me to identify similarities in the visions, and that ultimately has helped me to have a roadmap, kind of a holistic roadmap to follow. Um, I was telling Tim this morning that, I decided this week, I kept putting it off, but I decided this week to start looking at the visions and where there is corollary information in a vision to start listing those visions out. So for example, if you read, as you're reading through it, you'll come to a place where it talks about how there's flashes of lightning, rumblings, um, and uh, thunder, and, that's it in the first time. That's around the throne of God. And then later it'll go to flashes of lightning, rumblings, um, thunders, and earthquake. And then, so it just keeps increasing in intensity all the way through to chapter 16, where you have this massive earthquake that flattens the earth. There's other places, there's the sixth angel with the trumpet. When he blows his trumpet there's four angels at the river euphrates who are released and this massive army goes out Um, later in here we have the sixth angel pour out his bowl and the river euphrates is dried up those are the same those are happening at the same time the sixth trumpet and the sixth bowl and there's information that begins to correlate and i may when we're all done with this if you're interested um I'm, i'm thinking about just putting that into a listed out so you can have that to see how these, how these images and visions tie together, not in a timeline, but just in the sense of that, that these things are happening over and over again. Uh, it was really helpful to me, and I'll do it if I saw enough heads nod, so I'll do that and make it available. Throughout Revelation, as we've been moving through it, we've been moving toward two big ideas. The first big idea is that God will reward the saints. God will reward the saints. The last two chapters are specific in how God's going to reward the saints. But there's also moments along the way where the saints are rewarded. But while we wait as saints, we as God's people are to choose to be faithful in the midst of persecution from his enemies. That So there's this... We're moving towards reward, but in the meantime, we also are called to be faithful and obedient and to be conquerors uh, from the letters to the churches. The second big idea is that God will judge his enemies, and ultimately he's going to express his wrath upon them, but they will enjoy a time. The wicked will enjoy a time to reveal the the corruption of their hearts and their hatred of God. God gives them time to repent. He he gives them opportunities to repent. He calls them to repentance, but all they do is is show how much they hate him. Chapters 15 and 16 speak to this second uh, big idea. That's really what it's all about. There's a key phrase in the middle of chapter 16 where it says, it is what they deserve. What's happening to them is what they deserve. God has given them opportunity. God has given them invitation, uh, but they are now getting what they deserve. John tells us in 15 and 16, as he opens these chapters, that he now sees again a vision of what's happening in in heaven. Remember the visions move from heaven to earth, heaven to earth, back and forth. And now he's telling us again, what he's seeing happening in heaven. And for the first time, he uses two words to describe the vision, great and amazing. When John sees the final judgment of God and he begins to see this play out, he says it is massive and it is just beyond your imagination. Is really what the meaning of those words, great and amazing are. Seven angels, seven plagues come forth from God's temple which we are told is open we've been told that previously as well it's it it, again that's in that list of things that correlate there's a moment when John says the temple was open and John could see all the way into the temple all the way into the tabernacle to see the Ark of the Covenant this time again he says the temple is open He's, the idea is he's outside now of God's dwelling place, and from his vantage point, he can see one of the four living be, be, uh, creatures. They're the ones that are some kind of an angelic being that have weird faces and eyes all over their head and six wings, and they're at the foot, so the, the legs of the throne of God. They carry out his commands and they seem to guard the throne. But you can see one of these four living beings place plagues in the bowls of seven different angels. They are dressed in the finest of clothes. Um, for people who want to chase this down and enjoy this kind of thing, uh, Tim, I'm thinking of you. Um, the, the word there, there's a, whole, there's a whole big discussion of the word for what their clothing is made out of. Some very old manuscripts actually use a word that refers to stones and that correlates to Satan when he was created, was created in beauty and covered with all kinds of gemstones. So it's very possible that these angels may have been covered in gemstones like Satan. If not, the word is for linen, and there's just one letter difference between those two words. But if, uh, if it's linen, then they're in these beautiful white uh, garments. They have a gold sash around them. Either way, whether they're stones or the linen, they have a gold sash. And they look like Jesus is described in chapter one. So they're coming out, holding golden bowls, representing the authority and power of their king. And they leave the tent behind them, and as they walk out of the tent, God's glory revealed in, his glory and power revealed in his smoke, what we call Shekinah glory, which is fire and smoke, the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke, uh, or pillar of cloud, that engulfs the, the dwelling place of God And we're told that no one can enter into God's presence. It's it's an interesting statement because how many times have we been told that that we are to come into the presence of God with prayer, to come and talk with Him, and that we are welcome to come into His presence. But at this moment, as God pours out His wrath, we're told in Revelation that God's, God's glory and power are being put on display here, and his wrath, it apparently seems to be, is so strong and so pervasive that no one can enter the temple. No one can approach him. All those beings that have surrounded him and all the other vision, the elders and the millions of angels and the four living beasts, they all skedaddle. They're out of the temple because the wrath of God has come to its fullness and it's about to be expressed. The first angel steps forward. And this isn't, you know, this is, this is imagery. Uh, I, I, I would argue that it's not an actual angel with an actual bowl and a little bit of plague is sprinkled in there and he chucks it out there. This is imagery for us of how this is taking place. But the first angel steps forward, he pours out the plague from his golden bowl and horrible sores break out on all the allies of the beast. Anyone who has taken the mark of the beast immediately is covered with boils and sores. Uh, I would say that it, is, uh, it isn't just like, uh, oh wow, I got to boil, oh, I got to boil, but your body is covered like Job. And I, I would take the language here and the, the tenor of what's happening here as these sores are open and infected. They've gone to an immediate infection and massive pain. The plague from the second angel causes the water of the seas to turn into rotted blood. I thought about you know, it says the blood of a corpse, and I thought about maybe getting into that a little bit further this morning and I decided to spare you the full imagery of it. But it is it is rotted blood is what it is. It's not like fresh cut. Probably the seas are turning a brown color. And it kills every living thing in the sea. The third plague turns the earth's fresh water to blood as well and the fourth burns the earth with intense heat from the sun. The fifth plague engulfs the world in oppressive darkness. There is something about this darkness that doesn't just exist, but it, it sort of uh, persecutes the individual. By the way, if you're thinking, man, these plagues, some of these sound really familiar. Some of these plagues are exactly the same plagues as what came to the Egyptians the water of the Nile turning to blood, the, the, the darkness. This darkness seems to somehow cause massive anxiety and pain to the individuals, which was also what happened in Egypt. In the sixth angel acts, the Euphrates dries up, followed by three demonic creatures sent to deceive the nations and gather them for battle with God. And that battle is the battle of Armageddon, which doesn't actually take place right now. That's gonna come later. Finally, the seventh angel pours out his bowl into the air. A Lot of commentators believe that it's not poured out on the earth or poured out on the waters, but it's poured out in the air because Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. So this last judgment judges the place where he has power and this last judgment brings massive storms and earthquakes. 100-pound hailstones pummel the planet. I can't even wrap my head around that. I mean, I thought, hailstones like a bowling ball. No, those are about eight to 16 pounds, right? You're our bowling experts, the Andersons. So they're about eight to 16 pounds, and you know how big a bowling ball is. Transfer that out to 100 pounds. Try dodging those puppies, but they're just pummeling down along with an incredible electric storm and the thunder rumbling from those, those bolts of lightning right over you, and then a massive earthquake hits the earth and levels its surface. We're told that there are no more islands and there are no more mountains. I'm really hoping in the new heaven and the new earth God creates mountains again because I really like mountains. I can't imagine a world without mountains. But the mountains go flat. The ground is flat. And the waters come up and just... It's gone. There's no islands. So you're a human being. And I would add, i would add before I say what I was going to say, I would add to this that I don't think that these plagues came in rapid succession, because that would not really have the, as much of an effect as if the plague came and there was a period of delay before the next plague came, in a sense of, the, of experiencing the intensity of God's wrath in that plague. Now I can't say how long of a pause there was between each one, but even with the plagues in the Old Testament, there is a period of time that they last for before they're ended and the next one comes. But what we also have here is a building of these plagues. There's, there's, I would argue, time between them and the first plague doesn't go away while the second plague comes. They just pile on top of each other. So in the fifth, you have this oppressive darkness that comes And then the sixth is something that most people wouldn't have even seen, the Euphrates drying up. And then the seventh in the darkness, the ground starts to shake. And the skies just rend with a massive electrical storm. The only thing that you can see is in between the flashes of lightning as mountains fall. And we're told that Babylon is judged and destroyed. By the end of chapter 16, God's wrath has been spent on his enemies. The destruction of his creation has begun because there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So the old heaven and the old earth has to pass away. And we're told in Peter that the current earth is going to be dissolved in basically fire. The destruction of God's creation has become, has begun, but somehow his people are safe. I want to say here what I've said some other times as we've been in Revelation. If you are a child of God, if you are trusting in Christ for acceptance with the Father and forgiveness of sin through his blood sacrifice, these plagues won't touch you because this is the wrath of God being poured out on his enemies. So wherever human beings are, and I would argue that by this point, they've already been taken up. I think that's why 15 starts with the the people standing on the sea playing the harps. God, I think God's people have already been taken out, and the... The, the destruction begins as God pours out His wrath. You say, but there's more stuff to come. We got the millennium. We got all that stuff to come. We're going to get to that. But I would argue by this time, God's people are taken out. Doesn't fit my timeline. Too bad. It fits Revelation, and and I'm going to go with what I'm seeing happening in Revelation. But even if you're on the earth, you won't experience the wrath of God upon you because. In Christ, again, the wrath of God against the sin of those who have trusted in Christ was expressed on Christ at the cross. As I was thinking through this passage, these two chapters, there were a lot of topics that came to my mind to talk about this morning, but I've chosen two of them for us to consider, and we may just get through the first one and save the second one for next week. I think we can get through both of them. But the two topics I want us to consider as God's wrath is being expressed, the first is justice and the second is repentance. These two themes come out very strongly in these chapters, justice and repentance. As we read these passages, and if you really try to immerse yourself into the situation, I I look at, as as I study the Bible and I read the stories of human beings, I try to put myself in their shoes and I try to imagine what they were experiencing, whether that's Gideon in his moments um, or here. With this, I I took it kind of like, so what if I was a reporter standing out in the open, watching this all unfold? how would I feel? What would I be experiencing? If I was one of these people, what would I be feeling? What would I be experiencing? And, and if you really begin to immerse yourself, especially in this part, um, it, it, can, it can get a bit overwhelming. And, and by the way, if you're reading this and you are sitting there going, yeah, go get them, God. Um, you have missed the heart of God. God takes no pleasure in the death of his enemies. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And I didn't suck that out of my thumb or read it in some book, except this book. That's what God has said about himself. There's, there's, we should never see God at the end of this going, yes! Thumping his chest like football players do in the end zone when they score a touchdown. If we understand the death of the wicked, the death the wicked, when they die, go straight to hell, and we should take no pleasure in that. There is a phrase that people use a lot, and I'm quoting them. If it offends you, you're easily offended. But in the, there's a phrase that gets used a lot in our culture, go to hell. Those words should never come out of a Christian's mouth. So you're being legalistic. I'm not arguing on the basis of vulgarity or anything like that. I'm arguing it on the basis of our heart and our understanding of hell and our understanding of the suffering of the wicked in hell. There should be no pleasure in our hearts. I remember when Osama bin Laden was killed and the celebration that went across the newspapers and the television screens And how Christians were like, yeah, we got him. He got what he deserved. He got what you deserve, too. That's what all of us deserve, is help. It's only by the grace of God that some of us don't go there. That was not in my sermon. That's extra. But within here, as we read this, there's things that we might get so caught up in the the plagues and the imagery that we don't hear the voices that come through. But in chapter 16 and verses 6 and 7, at the end of the third plague being poured out, the angel who's in charge of the waters, which I have no idea what that means, except that there's an angel in charge of the waters. So that's, that's deep. Um, As he watches what is happening, he says, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Well, if the angel says it's what they deserve, yeah. What the angel is saying here, I I, I want to keep two things across. One, he's not celebrating. This isn't a celebration statement. This is more of a recognition of what God is doing. I also want to say that we should not hear these words as a defense of God. In other words, all these horrible things are happening and the angel kind of stands back and says, you know, before you get really upset with God and start to think bad of him, remember that God is just. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, God is finally bringing justice upon sin. God's wrath is finally being expressed and and this display of his wrath against the beast and against the antichrist and against uh, uh, the dragon and against his followers, it shows us that we have a just God. That's the argument that's being made there. This is not too over the top when it comes to sin. The only reason that we would be offended by this display of God's wrath here is because we fail to understand sin the way God understands sin. What God has done is just and is equivalent to meet the acts done by the judged. And that means no one can point a finger at God and say that his wrath is not justified. So we should walk away and not only realize how just our God is, that he does bring judgment upon sin, but we should have a sense of how grievous sin is in God's eyes. All sin, because it leads to death for the sinner and others, because it destroys the goodness of God's creation, and because it diminishes the glory of God, is barbaric. I wanted to use that word today because we've heard it so much in the news the last week or two. Barbaric acts. I want to say to you this morning that a lie is a barbaric act because it's sin. I want to say to you this morning that lust is a barbaric act because it's sin. I want to say to us as men and women, because it's a problem for both genders these days, that when we go to our computer and we click on a pornographic image, it's a barbaric act because it's sin. It harms It destroys, it diminishes. And this is what it deserves. I want you also to notice the second group in verse seven. I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. The altar, have you heard that before? Do you remember that anywhere in Revelation? There's this little altar that keeps popping up. Do you remember what that altar is? The what? The martyrs, yeah. Because that's the altar. There's martyrs under the altar, and that altar is the altar of incense. And incense represents what? You remember? Incense rising up like smoke to God, the fragrance rising up to God, represents the prayers of the saints. And so the first time we're introduced to the altar of incense, it's actually not the first time, but I'll tell you that in a minute. But the first time it seems we're introduced to the altar of incense is this group of people who are martyrs, who are under the altar. Again, it's it's imagery, it's symbolism but they're under the altar and they're crying out. They're crying out to God from under the altar. They're praying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were told to rest. Thank you, Joe, I'm glad that you remember that. They were told to rest. They weren't just told to wait. They were told to be at peace. Rest is the word. And and they were to rest because God was sovereign, God was in control. He said, until the full number of future martyrs were killed. So God was saying, there are more of your brothers and sisters that are yet to be martyred. When that full number has reached its point, then I will act, rest in the meantime. And they were given white robes. Now after three, bl- three plagues, they affirm that God is just. Before that was their cry. We've seen the altar of incense pop up here and there along the way. And now here we are. And from the altar, these are the voices of those martyrs under the altar. And they affirm that God is just as they say, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And they are satisfied that God has not forgotten to judge the wicked. There's one more connection to the altar of incense, and that is the bowls from which the plagues are poured out. In chapter 5, we're told that the golden bowls, that the elders hold golden bowls filled with the prayers of the saints. And what is used to pour out the plagues? The very bowls that held the prayers of the saints are now being used to pour out the judgment. It's a direct connection between the two. The saints have prayed for God to intervene, for God to judge wickedness. This imagery of the golden bowls with the plagues informed us, as we read this, it informs us that our God hears and answers our prayers. So I was saying to our uh, kiddos in our Sunday school class back there, Uh, A week or two ago, there's this phrase that people use: "I pray, and I feel like my prayers are hitting the ceiling." I don't know if you've ever used that expression, but people do. Heard a lot. I've heard that a lot from people over the years. I feel like God's just not there. My prayers aren't hitting the ceiling. My response to that, I try to say it as kindly as I can, but my response to that is, they don't have to get past the ceiling. Because where is God? He's in you. He's with you. He's promised never to leave or forsake you. He hears the prayers of His saints, even when we don't feel like He's near. He hears the prayers of our saint, of, of the saints, and He answers our prayers. Of course, these answers may not always happen when we want them to or be answered in the way we asked but God does answer and we must believe that he is just in his response. It is best to rest in his righteous choices and trust him. You know, when, our, when, our, when stuff goes sideways in our family, I write you right away and ask you to pray for us. It's not because I want attention. It's not because uh, I, I feel like you have to know everything that's happening in our family. I write you and I want you to know because we are a community of family. We are a community of the people of God. And I feel like in those moments, everything is out of our control and there's one person who is in control and I want you to join with us in praying with our family to our Father, to talk with Him about what we're going through. And, and sometimes you guys write, Terry and I, and say, you know, please don't share this with the congregation, but this is going on right now, and we pray for you because we believe that God hears our prayers. Maybe some people think that us sharing our family issues with you are too much. Um, again, I'm sorry. But you're our family, and we want you to be part of our family, and we want you to pray with us because we know God hears us. And He will strengthen all of us through prayer. You guys want to hear about repentance today, or do you want to wait a week? It's four minutes after, it's going to take me probably 15 minutes. No, let's park it there for today. It'll probably take me longer, and I don't want to rush through it. There's, a, there's an important thing here on repentance. And this way you can say that I actually did get done in less than an hour. So this is, this is good. Can you go from here this morning being encouraged that God is just? And that no matter what he does or what happens in your life, It's not by accident. It's not out of his control. It is part of his plan to conform you into the image of Christ and therefore it's just. I think that's a hard thing for me. There's been things that have happened in our family's life in the past that didn't seem very just. As a pastor, it just didn't seem just what what happened. There are Things that have happened to friends of mine at the time don't seem very just, people I love dearly. There are experiences that people I have shepherded have gone through that don't seem very just. And there have been times that I, early on in being a pastor, I would say to people, I wish I had a magic wand so I could make this all go away. And I meant well with that, but that's a horrible thing to say. Because what I'm saying is, if I had a magic wand, I could do what I think God should be doing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm turning their hope to me instead of to God. As i as I. The first few people that I sat by their bed, and specifically one that I literally ushered them into the presence of God and a good friend. And I said to her husband, I wish I had a magic wand to make this cancer go away. I came to realize later that God is just and doing a good thing, even in that moment even though i couldn't see it and god is still doing good things through barbs passing but he is just and we must believe that he is just in all of the situations that touch our lives and it's best for us to come to a place where we're willing to rest in his righteous choices and trust in his will He is sovereign, he does what he wants. He is good, he does no evil. He is love, he does what's best for us and can only do what's best for us because he's driven by love for us. For God so loved the world, he gave. He knows what's best for us. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipotent. He can do what's best for us. And He's just, so He will do what's best for us. Let's rest in Him and trust in Him and be able to say, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. Let's pray. Father, as I look back over the landscape of life, there have been so many moments that were so hard, so painful, so filled with grief, so frustrating. And there have been so many times that I have to acknowledge I didn't like what you did and I would have done it differently if I could. But I thank you that because of Christ, you have never cast me off for disagreeing with you. Your love has never diminished for me because I cursed at you. Your presence has never been far from me even though I tried to push you away. Father, I know I'm not the only one here who could say those things. There are times we just don't understand you and we don't understand what you're doing. And we want our way. I'm thankful you don't give it to us. Father, help us to be people who Celebrate who you are. Even though the characteristics that you possess, your personhood, infringes on our rights and steps on our turf and lovingly pushes us out of the way and you do what is just. Help us to trust you, to believe in you. I think of John the Baptist who's sitting in a prison after announcing your son as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world after confessing at the feet of Jesus that he was not worthy to unbuckle his sandal. Knowing that his birth was a miraculous one, and that your son Jesus's birth follows shortly after his own, and that you were that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Father, we find John sitting in a prison, sending representatives to Jesus to ask if he really is the Messiah, if he really is the promised one. Doubt is endemic to us. Cause us to see who you are, bring to our minds through the power of the Holy Spirit what you have said about yourself in this Bible that we carry. Produce in us love for you. Produce in us a will that submits to you and wants to obey you as we work out our own salvation, help us through the power of the Holy Spirit to have the will to submit and the ability to do what you desire. I affirm that you are just and thank you and praise you for that in your Son's name. Amen.